As you're headed back to your seats, just a reminder of what's un- upcoming here. We will finish the book of Esther, Lord willing, next Sunday. We'll touch into chapter, we'll finish chapter seven today and a little bit of eight, but then we'll finish it all next Sunday. And then my brother David Goff's going to bring the word on the following Lord's Day, and that'll be from out of Luke chapter nine, verses 51 to 62. So brother, we're looking forward to your feeding us from the word on that uh, Sunday, the 17th. Um, and then after that, um, just for your planning purposes, the Thursday night before Easter, it's uh, Thursday, March 28th, uh, we celebrate that as Maundy Thursday. It's, that, that week is variously celebrated, either Good Friday services or Maundy Thursday services. We, at Grace, have celebrated the Thursday night, which is the Lord's night of his Last Supper um, before his crucifixion. And so it is a service that revolves around the communion service, about an hour-long service. Um, that'll be our Lord's Supper observance for the month of March. Really want to encourage, if it's at all possible, for you to make time for that Thursday night, March 28th, and then Easter Sunday that follows. Our services will be at 8, 9.30, and 11. We'll have three services on Easter Sunday morning, so keep those times in mind. All right, we're in Esther this morning, and today is the day the bad guy finally gets what he has coming to him, right? <laughs> this is for everybody that has mentally been building the case against Haman as we've worked through this story. He is the epitome of an unjust, evil ruler uh, who has been bent on destruction. We were, we were introduced to Haman back in chapter three of Esther, and it's at that point that he is made by the king to be the highest civilian in, in the kingdom. He is the ranking official next to the king, given the king's signet ring, so he bears the authority of the king in this leading role. He is not royalty himself, but he certainly expects to be treated as royalty, and so indeed it says in Esther chapter 3, verse 2, the entire royal staff at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman because the king had commanded this to be done for him, but Mordecai would not bow down or pay homage. Therein, back in chapter three, sets the conflict that has uh, sort of been tracking along through these last few chapters, that of Haman and Mordecai. Mordecai is a Jewish man. He will not bow down to Haman. He has, it seems, increasing access to the palace area there around Susa. But it would appear that the reason Mordecai, a Jew, would not bow to Haman is given to us by the writer in Esther when he introduces Haman as being descended from Agag, who was a king of the Amalekites. And so early on in the story of Israel's journey from Egypt into the Promised Land, the Amalekites become these avowed enemies. They they are trying to strike out at Israel, and there is confrontation that carries on going all the way back to that time of the Exodus. And so Mordecai and Haman's ancestors are bitter enemies for centuries, and there is every reason to believe that that hatred carries on and, and, and explains to us, at least in part, why Mordecai is not bowing down to an Agagite. Haman, from sort of political purposes, as you look at the scenery, sort of has the upper hand. He is the one with the authority. Uh, he is the one who can sort of call the shots because of his political power. And when he found out that Mordecai was a Jew, he then zeroes in, not just on Mordecai, but on the Jewish people. Uh, Haman determines that instead of just going after Mordecai, he will punish all of the ethnic line related to Mordecai. And so he hatches a plot, which he takes to the king, and he asks for permission to have an edict issued that would 
destroy the Jews. That, that would annihilate Jews throughout the Persian Empire. And so the, the king, as we've seen so often happen in the book of Esther, naively goes along with it, doesn't seem to ask any questions, just approves it, puts it in writing. And so we got it again in chapter 3 where we see that. Verse 12, the royal scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. The order was written exactly as Haman commanded intended for the royal satraps, the governors of the provinces, officials of each ethnic group, written for each province in its own script and to each ethnic group in its own language, written in the name of King Ahasuerus. Oh, keep that thought in mind. It's written in the name of the king and sealed with the royal signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to each of the royal provinces telling the officials to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jewish people, young and old, women and children, and plunder their possessions on a single day. Haman's actions are pure evil. This is injustice at the highest levels. It is somebody who is using his power for the destruction of a people group. And so he is now taking his, his rage against Mordecai out on all of those who are in any way connected to Mordecai. And in the process, when he goes to the king, he essentially bribes the king in, in, into this edict with this massive sum of silver which is really meant to say to the king, listen, I know genocide has its political consequences in the sense that you've now lost this whole chunk of the population that is profitable to the empire and to taxes, and so I'm gonna fill that up. This is not noble in any way. This is essentially the Haman making sure that the king had no argument with what he was trying to do and that there wouldn't be any loss, at least economically, to the, to the empire. Haman never mentions the, the particular ethnic group, as far as we see there in chapter three, he simply expresses to the king, this is in your best interests. These people don't obey you, they're rebellious, we'll take care of them. Unbeknownst to Haman and to the king is his queen is Jewish. Queen Esther is, is Jewish. And so in issuing this edict, now the king is issuing the death penalty for his wife, for his queen. Esther had uh, kept the, the, uh, her identity secret. She had not acknowledged that she was a Jew. So when this edict is issued, we know that Mordecai secretly goes to Esther. He appeals to her as queen and says, now for such a time as this, perhaps that's why you are here, can you go and appeal? Can you speak up on behalf of your people? Can you seek to be the one who would deliver the people? That's what Queen Esther was doing when we left off there near the end of chapter six. She had hosted a feast, which she had invited the king and Haman to. King says, whatever you want, ask, make your request known up to half the kingdom. I'll, I'll, I'll do whatever. And, and she postpones another day. And she says, come back for another feast tomorrow. During that interim, we, we see God's providence at work, right? What, what happens during that time in between Haman leaves the palace. Mordecai again refuses to stand. Haman's anger against Mordecai just turns into rage. He goes back home to his wife, to his friends. He expresses how angry he is with Mordecai, and they come up with the genius idea of killing Mordecai. Build a gallows that are tall, that, that people will see that he will be humiliated and, and have him killed. Of course, what we also know from reading the story of Esther is that night the king has insomnia and in his sleeplessness asks his servants to read from the historical records. And of all places, they read from five years earlier, seventh year of the king's reign, and they read about Mordecai and how Mordecai had exposed a plot that would have assassinated the king 
and how Mordecai had never been honored for that, had never been recognized in any way. So when we get to the next morning, instead of executing Mordecai, Haman is now the king's agent for parading Mordecai through the streets of Susa as a national hero, as somebody who is dressed like a king, who is being treated like a king because what he has done is save the life of the king. And Haman is now more enraged than ever. He has been, instead of killing Mordecai, he now feels humiliated. And so this is when he goes back, and this is where we finished last week. He goes back to his wife and his friends, and they hear what's happened, and they say, something's gone on here. This is what happens. You're messing with a guy who's Jewish, and we've seen this in history before. There are times when there's some force there's something that goes on with the Jews, and when it happens, enemies don't win anymore. They lose, and your downfall is certain now, Haman, right? So that's where we are. So last verse of chapter 6, we'll read that, and then we'll push on into chapter 7. Uh, Esther 6, verse 14. While they were still speaking, and this is the wife and the advisors, while they were still speaking with Haman, the king's eunuchs arrived and rushed Haman to the banquet Esther had prepared. The king and Haman came to feast with Esther the queen. Once again, on the second day, while drinking wine, the king asked Esther, Queen Esther, whatever you ask will be given to you. Whatever you seek, even to half the kingdom, will be done. Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if the king is pleased, spare my life, this is my request, and spare my people, this is my desire. For my people and I have been sold to destruction, death, and annihilation. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept silent. Indeed, the trouble wouldn't be worth burdening the king. All right. The setting here, the, the, the context at which we're going to be looking as we go through chapter 7 is this idea of injustice. So what has happened, what Haman has done is unjust. And what Queen Esther is now bringing to the king is helping to expose this, this injustice, this violence, this plot against the Jewish people. And, and I want us to just think about, as we read through chapter 7, how we respond to injustice, how we respond to that which we see in our world that upsets us, that angers us, the crime we see, or whatever it is that just sort of stirs up in our hearts. How do we respond to that? And I, I'm going to give you three sort of things that I think we see here, because I, I think this chapter kind of breaks down into three parts. And the first thing is man's imperfect means. Man's imperfect means. And, and I'm looking in particular here at Queen Esther. Her request, let's make no mistake about this, is an act of bravery for her to go before the king and to expose herself as a Jew now is an act of courage. Now, mind you, there have been five years since the time she was first presented to the king that she has hid her identity. She has intentionally, at, at, at Mordecai's prompting, she has hidden her ethnicity and her family background. Mordecai had told her to do so. Mordecai clearly knew there was always potential risk for Jews within the Persian Empire, and so he said to keep that to yourself, and so for all this time, Esther's Jewishness was unknown. There's a downside to that that we, we need to acknowledge, and that is that for five years, Esther is clearly blending in with the Persian Empire. She is not practicing the, the, the Jewish law. There, there, there's clearly not observing um, dietary rituals, clearly not observing the feasts, clearly not observing necessarily some, some of the cleanliness purity rituals as well that we see in the Jewish laws. All of that has to be put aside. 
I'll just give you a quote from commentator Karen Job. She writes this, Esther is not portrayed as the ideal woman of God living out her relationship with the Lord as a direct example for women today. Her role as the Jewish queen of Persia in a specific stage of redemptive history and biblical theology means that no other woman can or should try to emulate directly her character or behavior, just as no Christian man today would emulate David when he killed 200 Philistines for their foreskins as the bride price for Saul's daughter. It's, it's fair to say, and, and, and this is not, for those of you as, as we've come into the story who've, who, who've had this exalted picture of Esther, let, let, let's keep her courage in mind, but let's also face the reality that scripture when it points us to role models, really only points us to one. It points us to Jesus Christ as the one that we should emulate. And so Esther is not that, and we shouldn't try to make her what she's not. In fact, you could contrast Esther with Daniel, and Daniel's in a similar kind of setting, and Daniel is publicly praying at risk of being put to death and completely willing to show his faith for people to see, his faith in Yahweh. So she is brave, but she's also cunning. And so when, when Esther comes to this moment of identifying herself, when she speaks in verse 7 of spare my life and spare my people, there is clearly a potential for deadly consequences. She does not know going into this how the king is going to respond. And so when we talk about her courage, that's, that's a real thing. She, she's facing um, just this tremendous risk that the king will turn against her. He's already deposed one queen rather quickly. Um, so, so there's no reason to believe that the king's automatically going to be sympathetic to her. But she also faced this. Haman is her target, if you will. As we see this conversation, she is, she's going to focus in on Haman. But that is to the exclusion of the one who is actually responsible for the edict to destroy the Jews. Ultimately, what she's doing is she's condemning the edict that the king himself was responsible for, that went out to all of the provinces and all of the languages, and it didn't have the name Haman on it. It had King Xerxes on it. And, and, and so she knows this is, this is tricky, this is complicated for the king, and we'll see how complicated it is when we get a little further down in the chapter. But suffice it to say, she has thought carefully about how this is going to go, how she must honor him, speak to him indeed as king, and, and sort of thread that needle between honoring and asking of him while at the same time indicting something that he is directly responsible for. In the eyes of the, the empire, this falls on the king. And so in verse 4, she recites the words of the edict to destroy, to kill, and annihilate all the Jews. And then she, she adds that subtle little, we were sold to destruction. So we know who she's talking about at this point. She's bringing the focus not so much on his edict, but we were sold. You remember the one who sold us into that by this sum of money. And that's, that's basically a subtle way of putting the blame on the one who paid for it. And then at that last phrase in verse four, she says that if it was just slavery, trouble wouldn't be worth burdening the king. I, I, I do think this is Esther to some degree just being somewhat cunning because she knows I, she's essentially telling him the edict is wrong, but she's trying in the same breath to say, but really this is worth it. I, I, trust me that this is serious enough that I wouldn't have come to you and wouldn't ask you to consider this if it wasn't as serious as it is. And so I say all that to say Esther 
for as much as we have her bravery before us, does use imperfect means. She's, she's calculating, she's careful here to, to put the focus on Haman while not ultimately holding responsible the one who truly was responsible for the edict. I would suggest to you, here's the point of, of this part of the story in the book of Esther. This is not teaching a kind of ends justifying the means sort of pragmatism that, that we can fall into in the sense of, well, this, this gets to the desired outcome, so it's, it's okay. The easier to ask forgiveness than get permission sort of mentality we sometimes all use at different points. As believers in Jesus Christ, our model for responding to injustice, to oppression, to slander, to fill in the blank, our model for that must be Christ. It is our Savior. We are called to be like Him in how we respond even when we are suffering. And we are still in need of His model and His Spirit and His Word to help us. And so we don't, we shouldn't resort to, to, to smooth, cunning words. When, when we perceive injustice, when we sense that something's wrong, we can be tempted immediately to just react, to just speak out, to post on social media, right, and, and give our opinion. And I would think that we need to be encouraged to, to slow down. There are times we, we react to things we perceive and we don't have all the information and we're speaking even before we truly understand what happens, James 1, 19 and 20, to be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to anger. Am I, am I jumping to conclusions about what, what you said or what I think you said or what you did? Uh, is injustice clear or am I just going along with the opinions of others? Um, and, and then when I do respond... Philippians 4 says to think on whatever is true and lovely and noble and upright. Are, are my words reflecting that? So when I do respond to injustice, even then, am I speaking with words that, that show Christ's likeness in how I do that? Or am I just joining an angry chorus of voices that's just pouring more fuel on the fire? The, the flip side of that is there's also times when I see potential injustice that I jump to defend a potential wrongdoer because that, that, that wrongdoer is on my team. And so I immediately jump to that person's side. Again, lacking information, lacking understanding. We're called to look like Christ and to act like Christ. And so I don't just echo my side's take on things. Sometimes I just need to slow down and pray and ask God for wisdom because our emotions can get the best of us when we perceive injustice. All right, let me read on verse 5. King Ahasuerus spoke up and asked Queen Esther, who is this and where is the one who would devise such a scheme? Let's pause here just a second. This has only been a matter of months. So this is, um, this is one of those scenarios where, again, we're not overly impressed with the king because it doesn't seem like he's feigning misunderstanding at this point. It genuinely seems like, I don't know what you're talking about. You're going to have to fill me in on this. Who is this and where is the one? Verse 6. Esther answered, the adversary and enemy is this evil Haman. Haman stood terrified before the king and queen. The king rose in anger. He went out from where they were drinking wine to the palace garden. Haman remained to beg Queen Esther for his life because he realized the king was planning something terrible for him. 
So you've got, first of all, the king's forgetfulness. I would submit to you again, if you're looking for evidences of God's providence, this works to Esther's favor. Instead of him catching on to what she's saying and saying, so you're telling me I was wrong for the edict, his response is, well, who did something as bad as this? And, and, and gives her the opportunity then to point to Haman. So that seems to work in her favor. Verse 6, she speaks these words of con condemnation. She says, the adversary, the enemy is evil, Haman. This point where things get really interesting. King's response is to get up, to leave the banquet room enraged, and go out to the garden. I, I, I think we sometimes, as Christians, we sort of think the best in situations. We think, well, he was just, he was... He felt the anger boiling up and he knew he just needed to go outside and take a walk so he didn't say anything foolish or respond in, in any kind of outburst. This is the king of Persia. He doesn't care how he responds at this point. He's not trying to guard etiquette at this moment. He's not afraid of saying something that he shouldn't say because whatever he says, he's allowed to say because he's king. So the question then is what, what has stirred this anger in him and why, why has he walked away? And this is where I, I said to you earlier, this is where I think it gets complicated. We have frequently seen this king being foolishly dependent on his advisors to the point of, of course, you know, deposing Vashti. Just this sense of, I don't know what to do, tell me what to do, whatever you say, I'll do it. And he's done that again in the case of Haman in this edict. Haman's come to him, hasn't given him all the details, he doesn't ask any questions. And here's another example of his closest counselor now putting him into a situation where he is cornered. He has now issued this, this terrible edict and it's gone out to the empire with his name on it. So the same king who made the foolish demand of the earlier queen and then listened to his advisors and deposes her is now about to be guilty of killing her replacement, of issuing an order that even though she's done nothing but serve well as king, she and, and all of her, her lot will now be killed because of something he agreed to essentially on a whim at least from his perspective. So yes, he's, he's angry at this moment. And, and he is cornered in some sense and trying to figure out what to do. Verse eight, just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, would he actually violate the queen while I am in the house? As soon as the statement left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. That was the end for Haman. It's another fascinating display of God's providence at this point. The king re-enters just as Haman is falling at the feet of Queen Esther. We've already known from the previous verse, he is pleading for his life at this moment. And it's so interesting that the writer of Esther describes him as falling on the couch. Where have we seen that word falling before? It's come up several times. It goes back to first chapter three, when Haman casts the lot on the day to annihilate the Jews, and it speaks of it, it fell on a particular date. It uses the Hebrew word for falling. Uh, in, in chapter six and verse 10, King orders, Mordecai, uh, orders Haman to go and take Mordecai through the city and to, to bring glory and honor essentially to Mordecai. And, and even there, the king's directions to Haman are, take everything you've said to do to honor him, don't let any of it fall. Don't drop any of this, you, you make sure it's all spoken. And then most recently we saw it at the end of chapter six, same Hebrew word used twice to say from Haman's wife and Haman's advisors, you've begun to fall now buddy and nothing's gonna break your fall. 
your, your downfall is certain. Same Hebrew word there. Haman's family and friends knew this fall was certain. He had set out after a Jew, and now there was something, something happening, something that they could not control that was happening, that was bringing about his destruction. When the king walks in, by God's providence, Haman is violating the understood code of propriety as to how close any man could be to the queen or to any member of the king's harem um, that wasn't a servant assigned to them. It's said by historians that it was roughly, there was sort of like a seven-foot circle that would be around the queen or the harem, and no other man should violate that. It is, I think, considerably doubtful that anyone in that moment, if there were servants watching, frankly, even the king and those who were there, who seriously thought that Haman was in the process of trying to assault Queen Esther. But it worked for the king. When the king walks in, Haman is falling at her feet. He is pleading for his life, and it gives the king what he needs to condemn Haman and to save face in doing so. It's not because of the edict. The edict still has to be dealt with, and we'll get to that in chapter 8. It's not because, Haman, you're, you're an evil man who would want to kill Queen Esther. No. He, he ultimately finds this, that you're violating, you, are, are you seeking to violate the queen? And at that point, Haman becomes worthy of death. The sentence, the actual sentence then, the conviction, if you will, really had nothing to do with the true evil of Haman, which was his plot to kill the Jews. He puts it on this incident. Ultimately, it was an imperfect form of justice that brought Haman down. The king was able to condemn Haman without having to bring up his own edict. Come back to that next Sunday. But for now, the horrendous villain in this story, the one that we have all come to despise, the one who tried to single-handedly take on God by destroying God's people, finally faces judgment for his actions albeit he is being condemned for something that probably wasn't really guilty of. And yet, the punishment was there, and that's important for us to see. Because there are times that justice doesn't always work the way we think it should. There are, there are things you have suffered and, and, and haven't experienced justice for, there, there are times, there are stories we see, there are things that go on in the world, and we think that, that is completely unjust. That is not right. Either it is letting somebody off when they, they should be convicted and, and sentenced, or it is persecuting, prosecuting someone who shouldn't be, and it is putting a punishment in that shouldn't be, or whatever it is that we might see. And there are times when we just cannot fathom how anything of redeeming value can come out of the injustice that we see. Consider Jesus. The, the charges against Jesus that condemn him to crucifixion. What did the Jews charge him with? Blasphemy of all things. The very son of God who spent his entire earthly life in perfect obedience to God's law, who pointed to God the Father at all times and who to the very end said, not my will but yours be done, who was submitted to God the Father, is charged with blasphemy, with somehow mocking God. And when that punishment, that, that, that accusation wouldn't bring about a punishment of death, which it wouldn't in a Roman court, what is the charge then? Insurrection. He, he wants to overthrow Rome. Well, well, nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be more evidently 
opposite of the truth to the point that even Pilate says, I can't find any guilt in this guy. Why don't, why don't I give you this guy to condemn instead, Barabbas? And yet Jesus is painfully crucified, which is why Peter then comes back and says, when you are suffering, when you are experiencing injustice, when you have done the right thing and you still suffer, look to Jesus Christ. Understand that your, your savior was mistreated and was killed. Justice was turned on its head and he was crucified, not for blasphemy, not for insurrection. He had done nothing wrong. He was crucified because it was ultimately the will of the Father for our justification. The, the, the act by which we would be saved. And so it was the Father's will to sacrifice the Son. So for us, in a, in a, in a fallen world, justice will be administered poorly. It will be filled with bias and partiality and, 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 and foolishness and, and all sorts of things that will get involved in there. And we need to be careful to not sin in our response because as Christians, we're still looking to Christ. We are still looking to follow after him. We should speak the truth. We're called to speak the truth in love. It doesn't mean that we be silent and we be doormats. We, we speak when there is injustice. We should be the first ones to call it out when there is genuine oppression and injustice. But by the same token, our words should still be those that would reflect well on our Savior, Jesus Christ. All right, verse 9. Harbana, one of the king's eunuchs, said, there's a gallows, 75 feet tall at Haman's house that he made for Mordecai. And then I love that he adds this, Mordecai who gave the report that saved the king, just in case our forgetful king had an absent-minded moment here. The king said, hang him on it. They hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's anger subsided. Verse 1 of chapter 8, that same day King Ahasuerus awarded Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Mordecai entered the king's presence because Esther had revealed her relationship to Mordecai. The king removed his signet ring he had recovered from Haman and gave it to Mordecai, and Esther put him in charge of Haman's estate. Is that not an incredible reversal in that? Mordecai, who is destined to be hung that day, is instead elevated. Haman, who seeks to hang him, he is hung, and, and Mordecai takes Haman's place. Mordecai is given the ring that Haman held, and, and, and the, the situation is completely turned upside down. Now, think about what we've seen here. We've talked about Esther, and courageous and yet imperfect means. Years of blending in with the, the rest of Persia, um, by her own practice, no one had a clue that, that she belonged to Yahweh in any way, and yet she does act courageously, but it, it's still, we still see imperfect means. The king and his rendering of justice against Haman. There's a sense in which we applaud the outcome of it. It, it got to the right conclusion, but it was the wrong crime. It wasn't what he had actually done, and the issue at hand still hasn't been dealt with. And so we still in some sense, celebrate because the man who was destined, who's bent on destroying the Jews and the empire is himself condemned to die. But then there's this, this sort of underlying storyline that I referred to at the very beginning that goes back 500 years to when Saul is king of Israel. And the reason that God ultimately takes the kingdom away from Saul is because of his dealing with the Amalekites 
and the king of the Amalekites. Because Saul was instructed, much as that, that edict said, that you are to wipe out the Amalekites. And what does Saul do? He preserves some. He, he plunders some of their goods, and he keeps the king and some others alive. And so the very reason, even though it was Samuel then who still took out that king, but the very reason Haman was even alive and a threat to the Jews was because Saul spared a remnant of Agag's line. And so you've got 500 years ago, King Agag, up to his distant descendant Haman, ultimately both bent on the same thing, the destruction of God's covenant, covenant people. The, the, the same being tools, weapons of Satan, if you will, to seek to live out Genesis 3.15 of the serpent striking at the heel of the seed, seeking to be the ones that would stop the coming of the seed who would bring salvation and blessing to the world. And Haman, King Agag are all in that line to try to destroy God's covenant people. Fast forward five centuries to this book where we don't even find the name of God, and yet we are seeing God everywhere in this story. We are seeing him at work to bring about his desired means. It was God's judgment that preserved his people and that stopped Haman. So even though we know that Ahasuerus essentially has Haman killed on a sort of trumped up charge, this execution is still ultimately a sovereign act of the justice of God. We're still in the end praising our king for bringing about his good plan because his purposes are fulfilled. And friends, that's what should encourage us today to rest in the good, perfect, sovereign justice of our king. So that even when we do experience or see injustice, abuse, oppression, violence, crime, fill in the blank with whatever it might be, even when our world seems to be filled with corrupt leaders and, and oppressive powers, e even when we see that some of the people with the greatest influence in our culture are speaking hate against God and against God's people and are rejecting righteousness at every level, our God will not be mocked. Amen. Haman did not walk away a free man. His plan did not go on. The, the sovereign God still ruled and his justice still prevailed and wickedness will not be overlooked. Therefore, we do not resort to unrighteousness when we are responding to our culture. We don't return evil for evil. That's the word Paul gives us in Romans chapter 12. We don't respond in that way. Those who follow Christ should not be rushing to potentially wrong judgment, should not be crossing ethical lines or biblical lines or ends justify the means sort of lines. We are still called to be like Christ because that is the defining quality that sets us apart from the rest of the world and how we respond to all the same stuff that we see around us. I'll end with just just referring to a psalm, psalm of Asaph in Psalm 73, because it, it, it just so reflects exactly what we're reading here. It's a tribute of praise to a just God. It is a, a, a psalmist who comes to the realization that the world looks completely upside down, and yet God is in control. And so in Psalm 73, in the first half of the psalm, the writer is just bemoaning the world as he sees it. He cannot understand the level of sin and vileness. He's bemoaning the fact that people are arrogant and wicked and 
evil in what they do. They mock others. They speak maliciously. They threaten oppression. Those who have the power around him are, are not using it to fear God. They're using it to destroy those around them and to rule those around them. And the psalmist is writing out of this sense of utter dismay. First 16 verses are just essentially a, a chorus of how can this be happening? This is not right. And so he says this, and this is the pivot point in the psalm. Verse 16, when I tried to understand all this, it seemed hopeless until I entered God's sanctuary. And then I understood their destiny. Indeed, you put them in slippery places. You make them fall into ruin. How suddenly they become a desolation. They come to an end swept away by terrors. You see what he's saying? It all seemed senseless and unjust until I entered the presence of Almighty God. For us, that would be until I, until I opened the word of God and I looked for truth, until I came to the place of saying, God, I don't understand this and I'm looking for wisdom. And then what he saw clearly is God is just. God does not let the guilty go unpunished. There is judgment for those who enter eternity not belonging to Christ. Those who continue in rebellion against him will be judged for their sins. And he goes on to say, then I was no longer foolish. I was no longer filled with bitterness. Now it is a psalm that carries on of this wonderful testament of trusting in the Lord and in his perfect care for his soul. And so he says this in Psalm 73, verse 23. Yet I am always with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me up in glory. Who do I have in heaven but you? And I desire nothing on earth but you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. Those far from you will certainly perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, God's presence is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge so I can tell about all you do. I love that last. God's presence is my good. Friends, until Jesus Christ returns and there is a new heaven and a new earth, there will be evil. There will be injustice. We will continue to struggle with our own sin. We will be part of that and, and, and committing sin. But there is, there is coming a day when our king will rule. And, and that will be no more. There will be no more plots like Haman's against God and his people. The, the, the terror and the abuse and the violence that we see, the ungodliness that seems to be increasing, it will all be gone. And so our response to it even today must not be to lash out in anger because God's presence is our good. Because we know that he is with us and that we are trusting in him. We must speak truth and love but we need to do so resting in him. He is your sufficient portion forever. He is your refuge. So yes, Esther was courageous. She steps in this gap that is between her people and their destruction. And she steps in that gap in between that and bravely says, the adversary and enemy is this evil Haman. And, and, and she speaks in that moment and by doing so becomes an important part of God's plan to preserve his people through this attempt to destroy them. But 500 years later, our Savior Jesus Christ came and he stood in the gap between our sin and a holy God. And he stood between the wrath of God the Father, deservedly so, toward our sin. And he stood in between and he took 
the penalty for our sin. He took that punishment in his body on the cross so that he might stand and claim us who turn to him and trust in him as his own. And that is our joy to be able to say the presence of God is our good. If you are this morning not trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, my, my imploring to you is not go out and be brave, go out and do good things. My imploring to you is turn to Jesus Christ. He is the one who gave himself in your place and who died for sinners so that we might be forgiven and that a holy God might have his wrath satisfied in Christ so that we would not only be forgiven, but we would actually be made righteous that we could stand before him and enter into his kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, you are good. Thank you for your justice. Thank you for proving to us time and time again, not that you need to prove anything to us, but yet still doing so. You prove to us time and time again that you are just in all of your ways. That in, in, in fact, if there is injustice, it is the fact that any of us, by your grace, would be saved and brought into your presence. That's, that's the thing that's most incredible to us, is that sinners would be delivered, and yet even in that, your justice was satisfied in the death of Jesus Christ. And so we thank you. We thank you that you rule sovereignly, that you rule rightly, that all of your judgments are righteous. And Lord, we're, we pray that we would not walk away from a passage like this, simply hardened against evildoers, but that we would still long for, in your mercy and your grace, the compassion that you would rescue them and save them from their sin, much as you rescued and saved many of the people in this room from, from what we deserved. We pray for your grace to be poured out. Lord, help us to be a people who, as we constantly are exposed to things that are seemingly criminal and unrighteous and unholy, and we are often tempted to respond with anger, poor words, to respond almost in kind. Lord, would your spirit bring us up short, cause us to be like Christ, help us to call out evil for what it is, to identify it, to speak truth against it, but to not do so in a way that would drag us into sin ourselves. We want to walk in the righteousness of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who when he was suffered and reviled, did not return in kind, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly, his Father. Help us to do that. Thank, thank you for your grace toward us. Thank you for your work in the hearts of your people. Pray that if there's anyone here this morning not trusting in Jesus Christ alone for, for that hope, for that forgiveness, that today you might graciously Draw them, open their eyes to see the beauty of what Jesus did when he died in our place and put their hope in him. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.